Dr. Sue Stanfield, and I'm with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And today we're taking a bit of a less traditional approach to the study of history uh, by thinking about the history of a plant. And for this podcast, I'm speaking with Ligia Argeles, um, a PhD candidate in the History Department at UTEP, about the creosote bush. So... I'm not from the area. I've only lived in El Paso for a short time, so I'm not particularly familiar with the plant. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about it and maybe what it looks like and and how it's used. Sure. Um, Well, the creosote bush um, is the the dominant or co-dominant plant um, in this Chihuahuan desert and all the way through the Sonoran Desert, Mojave Desert. It even goes into... um, Upper Nevada, Utah, Great Basin Desert. Um, so it's a very common desert plant, and these deserts straddle the U.S.-Mexico border. So I, I always see it as a very sort of border plant. Um, I grew up here on the on the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso. I was born in Tijuana. My parents are also from the border, Mexicali, uh, Calexico. Uh, so we have a my family has a very long history of being on in the deserts of, of this borderlands uh, region. So uh, the plant, uh, I mean, it's hard to describe it. So it's everywhere, and, and many times people don't notice it, right? But it also has a very long history of, uh, of being medicine for the people of the desert, indigenous people, but also Mexican, Mexican-American people use the herb to heal all kinds of stuff. So it's been a medicine. Um, it's... I think most people would recognize it because of the smell. And so that's one of the the big things that you hear is, oh, the desert rain, the desert rain smell. Uh, So in a real interesting way, the plant becomes sort of part of the place and part of people's attachment to the place through memory, through through their senses, which is kind of fascinating. So if you talk to people who've lived here all their lives and then they leave, a lot of people have told me, what's wrong with the rain in, you know, these other places because it doesn't smell right to them. And, and then, you know, you realize that, well, that's a very specific smell attached to this place because of that plant. So when we I smell... Say, when I moved here, the first night I was in El Paso, it rained. And then the oh. next morning we got up and were um, walking around campus. And, and we did, I was uh, here with a friend and we both talked about, oh my God, it smells fantastic. Oh. <laughs> because it was, it was something very distinct. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if that's what I was smelling. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. So that's usually how people will recognize the plant. Oh, the smell. A lot of people will also say, oh, my grandma. You know, my abuela used to drink that plant. She would always have her tea or my mom or, you know, most, I think half of the people I talk to will have some sort of connection um, to healing and the plant. Okay. Um, Whether they're Mexican, Mexican-American people or indigenous people or people that have sort of roots in the desert will typically, uh, so many of them will say, oh, my dad drank that for his arthritis or, you know... My mom used to burn it to, you know, clear out bad energy in in rooms or something. So it's really cool that all these little people have a a lot of connections. Um, But at the same time, 
it's a dominant plant that's ev- kind of everywhere and often invisible. Like people don't notice it. It's so common. It's it kind of does not enter enter into our consciousness that much. So um, I find that fascinating. Uh, I can also say it, it has had as like a, a long history and as a medicine, like I said, as this sort of smell ecosensorial <clears throat> phenomenon. Um, it's also known as being like this incredible desert survivor. So it's a plant that has a very long life. It lives hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years. There's a plant in the Mojave Desert that was dated um, by a biologist in California to be over 11,000 years old. So that plant uh, it eventually became a clone and just started sort of growing in place. So it's been growing in place for thousands of years in the Mojave Desert. Um, so that's also really fascinating in terms of a plant that's native to the desert, that's a desert survivor, that's really, really uh, genius at its, its use of water um, and lack of water and still being able to dominate and be, be sort of a very, very, very common desert plant. So is it, um, does it bloom or is it just sure. leaves? No, no, no. it's a shrub. It's okay. actually, a, it's a, it's funny because a, a, a lot of people sort of ignore it because it, it doesn't really call a lot of attention to itself. It's sort of a, a greenish, sometimes yellowish, brownish shrub. Okay. Um, it'll grow anywhere from, you know, a foot to six feet around here, but it's usually pretty low. Um, and it does bloom. It makes really pretty little yellow flowers and then it makes little fuzzy, um, seed pods. So they look white and they're like fuzzy. Okay. (laughs) And so is it, um, is it a kind of like a predatory plant that, that takes over spots? Mm. It's really, that's really interesting that you, that you asked that just because like part of my research is asking how we, um, how we give identities to plants around us, right? Um, so we see some plants that, as predatory, as plants that take over space, as plants that that invade, right? That are invasive, that take over, which I think is fascinating because that's a very that's a very culture that we're putting. It's our sort of a an imposition of of the way that we think onto plants, right? Um, even though probably who knows how you know I don't know how plants are thinking about it, <laughs> but. Uh, but um, so depending on who you ask, and, and that's also really interesting. So some people see the plant as a bad thing or useless, worthless, kind of ugly. They devalue it. It's, you know, uh, and in, if you were a, sort of a cattle rancher, you know, in, in the mid-20th century, in 1950s or 60s or 70s or 80s even, you probably would have thought the plant was an enemy, just a terrible plant because um, they really envisioned the plant and and not just that plant, but also plants like mesquite, um, desert shrubs that will move into spaces that had grass. But once the grass has been um, sort of overgrazed, right? So if, if the ground is disturbed, then they'll move in. But mm. they don't necessarily move in uh, well, there's probably two reasons. One is is humans. So humans and overgrazing 
of animals uh, will make them move. But climate climate change can also make sort of shrublands move and okay. into grasslands. So it could, you know, it could be both or neither. I wouldn't call it a predator plant. Some some a lot of people say um, that the plant um, kills other plants around it um, with like a chemical. Uh, but as far as I can see, that's probably not true. It's pro- it seems to be that it's just really effective at utilizing the little water that's around, and it's just better than the other plants. But that said, it's often not the only plant that grows somewhere. A lot of times you'll see long stretches of it, like going toward like Las Cruces um, and Trans Mountain, all those sort of mountains um, – on the bajadas, you know, on on the where you're going up or down, you're going to see a lot of creosote bush, and usually that might be all you see. But a lot of times, I mean, the, the creosote bush is also a nurse plant to to a lot of other plants and to animals. So if it was poisonous and killed everything around it, it wouldn't be a nurse plant, right? Fair enough. <laughs> so um, I think it's really easy for me to think of the study of this plant as um, part of botany or maybe even sociology. Uh, So how does this, I know environmental history has been around for a while, but Mm -hmm. not as long as some of the other approaches. Mm -hmm. So how does this work, um, a historical study of a a plant or the environment? So, so far, what's really out there about this plant in particular are like botanical biology, medicine, uh, or medical sort of lab studies. Um, but I guess what they don't provide is the human aspect, right? And so that I think that comes from my background at, in environmental history. So environmental history studies the relationship of people with the natural world and that what they call the sort of a culture-nature dichotomy, right? And which you know, which challenges that it's they're separate zones. Um, so the history of the way that people have related and shaped nature around them, and and been shaped in turn by nature. Um, and so I think that's and then and then that plus the fact that I study um, borderlands history, and then I'm a borderlands person. Um, I'm a fronteriza, you know, from the border. I grew up here and. And so those two things come together in this project for me. So, so in terms of, um, you know, it's not a botanical study. It's a historical study. So I'm looking at everything that's been written about the plant. So I'm and, – and a lot of this project is really made possible by the internet, to be honest, because there is no archive that I can go to to learn about the plant, like – or any number of archives. Um, I have to kind of start with a, a – big, broad search and see what's been written, everything that's been written from newspaper articles to um, mention mention of the plant in, say, colonial sources by um, Spanish priests, you know, in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, or, And then I also utilize oral histories. So talking to people about the plant has been really important in terms of culture and cultural memory and 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 that kind of thing. So so those are all things that are not going to come out in a biological study of a plant, right? Because in a biological study of a plant, it's a, it's an object, right? It's it's static, uh, sort of. It's like a, you don't see it in terms of people or culture. 
But with history, you do. And so you think about the way that people have seen it, related to it, used it, interacted with it over time and how that's changed depending on on the time, the place, and the people. Well, I think your, your explanation is a great segue into my next question. Uh, it's early in the semester, and we're just starting to talk about things like what is a primary source, what is a secondary source. Um, and I'm kind of curious if you could help help us all understand those ideas through your own research. And so right. how, do we, how do we think of, um, is, is the plant itself a source? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, part of what I'm trying to do in this process is learn how to know a plant, right? And learn what a plant can in turn tell me about us, about people. So there are, there are areas of study, there's, you know, critical plant studies is relatively new and sort of up and coming where people from broad uh, disciplines, whether it's philosophy, literature, film studies, or, or, uh, or even science, are looking at plants as agents. Like what do plants do? Um, and looking at them philosophically in terms of like who, it, what is a plant, right? And what is its, its sort of life? And, and, and finding that plants are really, really active subjects, you know, they're sort of, they have their own subjectivity. They make choices. They do things like communicate with themselves um, chemically. So they're kind of these biochemical geniuses. Um, and so, so there are all these really cool studies coming out that are helping me sort of formulate how I'm looking at this project because it is a plant. So I don't have the answer as to like, how do you know a plant? But that's, that's part of, that's part of this process, right? And so the plant should absolutely like, uh, is a primary source. Absolutely. Um, and so that, that takes you into different sort of not, it's, um, without a basis in like historical study, right, to smell a plant or w sit with a plant or observe the plant, you know. So, um, but that's certainly part of it. And then, um, like I said, oral oral history is really important to this because it brings in people's memories and people's histories with the plant. And then, of course, um, the, the scientific studies are also primary sources. So I'm looking at how it's been studied in the lab and what kind of sort of chemical, the chemical makeup of this particular plant. It has, um, you know, one of the most sort of potent antioxidants out there is, is specific to this plant. Um, I was about to like go off on a tangent, but I, I think I'll try to stick to the question. Uh, uh, so absolutely, those are primary sources. Um, there are there are no sort of synthetic sources. Um, there's there's actually one book about the plant written by scientists, but in terms of otherwise, it's like little pieces from little mentions from everywhere, which is a little bit different uh, if, if, as a historical study. Sort of pulling together all these little things and little connections. Well. Um I think history, obviously, as a history professor, I think it's one of the most useful classes that you can uh, take agree. in college. And I 
And I know um, we've talked about this before. And so I'm kind of um, curious because most of the people listening to this, um, particularly since this is early in the semester, perhaps we haven't won them over yet, um, <laughs> but are, are taking 1301 because it's a required course. So I'm wondering if you would take a minute and and tell us a little bit about why you love history, what brought you brought you to history as a as a course of study, and probably more importantly, what skills do you think that it it's providing uh, all of us? Oh, geez. Um, I like to keep it real simple and yeah. narrow there. <laughs> um, so I agree. I agree that history is really valuable. And the more that I do it, the more I kind of get excited about it. Um, and I also know, like, for instance, you know, in the past, I, I've overheard students talking about history, you know, and they'll say, like, yuck, ugh, you're going to history class. Ugh. And I think, oh, no, um, because... Uh, I think, uh, I, well, I was always, I was always a kid that, that wasn't sort of satisfied with easy answers. And so, you know, for the people who are constantly asking why, uh, history is like, that's, that's history. Um, but also, and I think more sort of specifically, um, history has taught me about looking at things on a lot of different levels. And, find, and what you find is that if you zoom in close up, right, like people or interpersonal stuff, um, you may find one thing and that's true on that level. And then maybe you, you pull the scope out and you look at bigger picture and bigger sort of historical context or just context. Um, and it may tell you a different story. And, and all the different sort of lenses that you use will will reveal different things. And, and so as a historian, you have to become very comfortable with sometimes those things don't jive. Sometimes they're contradictions. Something close up may tell you something that something, you know, a, a very broad view is going to, uh, it, it won't necessarily match up all the time. And so it complicates the way that you see everything. So you say, well, yeah, that's true, but also this is true. And all, you know, so, uh, you learn to 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 live in in a in a sort of a gray maybe a gray area that's not a bad thing and you learn to get away from absolutes black and white good and evil you know those kinds of dichotomies history is constantly blurring those those dichotomies and and making things far more sort of whole picture but it it doesn't give easy answers so yeah. But I, I, that excites me. I was going to say one of the things I find challenging about like the U.S. history survey is we're covering so much time so quickly, and there's a tendency to want to follow a really simple storyline. Right. And one of the things that I hope that you get in college that you don't get in high school or junior high is the fact that it is it's a lot more complicated. So we can look at George Washington and say um, he does a lot of cool things by making the nation the nation. But he's also a slave owner. Mm -hmm. He also relentlessly pursued a house slave that ran away for, mm. you know, over a decade um, and couldn't let let her go. You know, there there's always things that that complicate how we understand things. How do we see his role with Martha, you know, mm -hmm. that changes things. And so that's that's one of the things I, I too love about history is, you know, don't judge it by sort of the broad swath 
But instead, right. think about then when you dive in a little deeper, um, yeah, the the more complicated things that you see. It kind of it's kind of ruins the uh, heroes. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that's a good, that's a good thing. I really do. I, I because because human that's humanity, right? Humanity has darkness and and light and and is sort of products of everything around it. And so it's very hard to say to just decide that somebody is like this wonderful heroic person that founded our nation. Yeah. Um, it's far more complicated. It's and with Jefferson as well. With that, with all of them, right? Yeah. There's <laughs> there's none of them that are that are perfect. And as a as a women's historian myself, I always find it um you can't celebrate all of these women. Right. They've they also have complicated, um, I don't even want to say complicated, but troubled past in terms of questions of race and class. Absolutely. And so, you know, you want to both celebrate but also recognize those those right. problems or those right. drawbacks. Or, or and ask and ask why do we want to celebrate? Like where does that come from? Like yeah. why why do we need to celebrate people? We can, you know, instead of sort of seeing people in sort of all their complexity at the same time and not having to, I don't know, commemorate or heroify or I don't know. For me, uh, it may be also that I'm. It's a Borderlands thing. Like history has become a a Borderlandsy kind of study because you're looking at all these intersections, right? Whether it's in a person or a place and and all those intersections uh they they don't make for a clear yes or no answer right you're always kind of playing in the in between contact zone of facts and sources and trying to make sense of them so it could be that i see everything in a borderlands kind of kind of way <laughs> so let's say you know <clears throat> people listening to this are inspired and they want to do a little history research on their own. So if they were going to look on campus and find find the creosote bush, what would they what kinds of questions what when they're observing, what could they they look for or think about? Well, I would say <clears throat> so much of what I what I'm doing with this plant, um, it's it's both a, a personal and an academic journey. I always say that my mom gave me my research topic. She didn't explicitly give it to me. But growing up, she was always sort of curing us with this plant and we'll gargle with it and duh and, you know, infections. And and so this plant was kind of part of my life growing up, the smell, right? And I associate it very much with my mom and with family and home. Um, and so, so, so part, and then, so then I wanted, so then I was just like, I never really thought about it. It was just there. And I was driving back from California through the, on the eight through the Sonoran Desert. And of course, it's it's a part where it's like everywhere on the drive. And I was like, "What's what? Yeah, what's the deal with that plant? That's like my mom's plant, and you know, that's the gobernadora, right? Um, what it's called in Spanish, it's also called wamis. Um, uh, but what's the deal with that plant? Like, what's its story? And I all of a sudden I became I saw it, right? I really noticed it, and I. And I was like, uh, I want to know its story. And studying, so so the, my my PhD has facilitated kind of my own, my academic development and my personal development. And part of that has been seeing what's around me with new eyes, right? Seeing the plant, every, you know, everywhere, but seeing it as 
as a living thing, um, not just kind of background, but making it the central character. Uh, so I think, yeah, and yeah, it's all over UTEP. So I would just, I would, I would suggest that we start noticing not just the creosote bush, but all the other sort of desert plants around us. And this campus is really cool because so much of it is still desert. Like it wasn't, it wasn't mowed down to put, you know, not all of it anyway. So much of it is still kind of in this, in, uh, in this, I don't know, granite landscape, right? So um, I would say notice it. I I would just, I mean, the I like to walk up to it and sort of breathe on it. You know, like, and then you'll smell it. And, and it's a cool, it's just cool to think about what it makes you think about, what it makes you feel, what it makes you remember, whether you think it's disgusting or whether you think it's, a great smell, you know, it really depends on the person. So I would invite everybody to do that. And I would invite everybody to, to open, to open their, their eyes to sort of what's around us in this desert. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. It's making me also think about, um, as someone that studies more everyday life, uh, in the, the 19th century is thinking about the history of objects or materials yep. yeah. and, this is just another, you know, it's a living object, but yeah. but a different approach. So one thing that we're asking all of our experts um, mm-hmm. in this is to imagine that your topic or your item has an Instagram account, right? So so the plant has its account. I, I barely have an Instagram yeah. account. I have one and I <laughs> don't even log in, so... Um, what would be some hashtags that it may create for itself so people could could understand it and want to follow it? So I was thinking maybe like a hashtag seeing with new eyes, a hashtag uh, elder plant, something like that, a hashtag border plant. Um, uh, and then, of course, it, all of its many names, gobernadora, wamis, people call it chaparral, people call it greasewood. Hediondilla. It's got so many names. It could be any number of those. Or hashtag desert medicine. You know, I don't I don't know. That's a weird question because I don't I, I don't know how to think like the plant. I can just think about myself thinking about the plant. And that's that's good <laughs> enough. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me about this. I really I'm fascinated by this sort of different approach to history and also learning more about the border because yeah. I, I like living here. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks.